0: This Dharma Talk was recorded at Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here with you this morning, Uh, seeing some familiar faces uh, and some faces that I hope to meet in person when we are able to travel again. I'd like to thank uh, Jodo Cliff and Chikyo Yuan for the invitation to be with you here this morning. So thank you both very much. Uh, my heart is heavy uh, today for the passing of my Dharma uh, grandfather, Sojin Mel Weitzman. Uh, he was the teacher of my teacher, uh, Ed Brown, who many of you know. Uh, I've known Mel for gasp. 30 years, probably, at least. Uh, and he always practiced with a slight smile, as Thich Nhat Hanh encourages us to do. But under that smile was the sword that could cut straight to the heart of the Dharma in a way that inevitably gave us right view. I'm going to talk a little bit about right view later, but right view doesn't mean my view is right and your view is wrong. It's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's about perspective. Uh, The first of the Eightfold Paths, uh, right view, everything else depends on this. And Sojin could always cut straight to a perspective that made your mind go pop. Oh, yeah, here's the bigger picture. So I'll give you just one example. Uh, Tasahara, one time, he gave a talk about the Doan Rio. These are the people that ring the bells and announce the chance. Uh, and he said the purpose of the Doan Rio isn't to ring the bells and announce the chance. The purpose of the Doan Rio is to invite participation. That when you ring the bells and invite the chance, what you need to be thinking is, "Come, you too can do this." And people get so intimidated uh, by all of this uh, statuary and robes and serious looking people uh, that show up in Zen places uh, that they need people that are already in there to invite participation. And I've always remembered that. That's my favorite story about Sojin. Uh, And he was was that. He was uh, invite participation embodied. So I'm sad uh, for the loss uh, of him. The world, which was already a little dark and cold these days, uh, just got a little darker and colder without his presence. Uh, However, I'm quite sure he wasn't afraid of dying, uh, that that what he was thinking is, okay, what's next? On on to the next Dharma possibility. We wish him well on his journey. May he be safe uh, and at peace. But his passing is just one more calamity, isn't it? In a world that uh, seems to have an overabundance of them at the moment. So this is the topic I would like to take up with you today is how do we bring our practice to a world of calamities? And the problem when we have so many calamities going on, is that we tend to lose our ability to distinguish a true calamity from drama, and our dramas tend to escalate to the level of calamities, which is a real problem. So let me give you a specific example. That argument that you had over politics, over Thanksgiving dinner, whether it was in person or virtually, That argument that you had with a member of your family over turkey and stuffing leads to somebody showing up at a riot and damaging some property and somebody else at the table turning them in to the FBI or the police or whatever. This is where family drama becomes a calamity. There are many more examples. But this is a danger when we live in a world fraught with calamities is that everything tends to become a calamity, and we forget uh, how to distinguish, how to bring our practice to calming things down. Dogen said that the most important time for our practice is when it's dark, and we don't think it will get light again. And I don't know about you, but right now, it's kind of hard to find the light, except right now, with all of us together. So thank you for being a candle in this darkness. Uh, By the way, I just referenced Dogen. I wanna let you know that uh, I will be citing several uh, sutras and contemporary uh, authors today, and Ewan has the list of who I am citing today. So if you're interested, you can check with him afterward. He has uh, the list of my references. So how to bring our practice, as Dogen said, to times when it's dark? Several years ago, Harold Kushner wrote a very helpful book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Maybe some of you have uh, read that book. And he says that there are, there's a question we tend to ask when calamities hit, and that question is, why me? And he says that's absolutely the wrong question. Uh, the question is not, why me? The question is, now what? Now what do we do? Now that there are calamities, now that it's dark, now what do we do? And Buddhism says that we have three choices when we have these calamities. We can make them worse, we can make them better, which sounds like a tall order right now, or we can just not make it worse, kind of the middle way here to not make it worse. So I would like to take up first today with you is the ways that we make it worse, that we make these calamities worse, Uh, and how uh, traditional Buddhist teaching tells us that we make it worse. So uh, how do we do this? How do we make it even darker? Um, Well, the short answer to that classically in Buddhism is greed, hate, and delusion. There's the answer right there to how we make it worse. And what we do uh, in greed in particular, I'd like to say that there's probably a lot of greed going on right now. I'll get to a particular point of that in a moment, but this chasing and accumulating and piling up, grasping and clinging the eighth and ninth steps of the 12-fold chain of causation, this uh, grasping at anything that will make the darkness go away or will make it so we don't have to notice it. What greed causes us to do is to trade happiness for perceived safety. So we grasp and cling to anything that will help us feel safe in these dark times. I'm gonna read a passage from Walpola Rahula's What the Buddha Taught about this definition of greed or tanha, as it's called in Sanskrit and Pali, tanha meaning thirst. And you wanna think of this thirst as three days in the desert without water kind of thirst. horrible thirst for safety, uh, for protection. Here's what Rahula has to say. The term thirst includes not only desire for and attachment to sense pleasures, wealth, and power, but also desire for an attachment to ideas, ideals, views, opinions, theories, conceptions, and beliefs. According to the Buddha's analysis, all the troubles and strife in the world, from little personal quarrels in families, like over Thanksgiving, to great wars between nations and countries, arise out of this selfish thirst. So during times of calamity in particular, this thirst ratchets up. We build our fortresses of bricks or of ideas. And Nagarjuna says about these fortresses, Nagarjuna, a 6th century uh, Indian Buddhist philosopher, said, yes, we build this fortress and no one can get in and we can't get out. So we get stuck uh, in our fortresses and as the Avatamsaka Sutra so poignantly puts this, we get caught the bandits of manias. (laughs) We get caught by the bandits of manias. We build our fortress. We hoard toilet paper. We do all kinds of things out of the greed of needing to feel safe. A related way that we make it worse during calamities is this is a time when we cling strongly to our own point of view we get intoxicated by our beliefs and our point of view we create an us and them the sutta i'm sorry the sutta says that there are five dangers in the world poisonous insects snakes violent people raging animals and people with different beliefs in the Buddha's time, the fifth precept, a disciple of the Buddha does not intoxicate mind or body of self or others. This precept about intoxication and addiction was not primarily about drugs and alcohol, the things that we typically think we get intoxicated by. In the Buddha's time, the most dangerous addictive substance was views to get intoxicated and addicted to our own views, our own perspective, to seek allies, and to make not only other people who think differently, to not only make them separate and them, but to believe that they are not human. And this delusion of separateness is the third way, classically in Buddhism, that we make things worse during calamities. We believe we're separate, And we reinforce that treatment. We give people the silent treatment. We engage in us and them. The tabs across the top of our browser are only about sites that reinforce our own perspective. There is a classic question in Buddhism that says, what makes a Buddha? And the answer is all beings. Unfortunately, that's the same answer to what makes a terrorist. All beings. So we actually make each other and in times of calamity we are not careful about how we make each other and especially when we can't meet each other and see each other face to face, see each other's expressions, read the body language, we have no way other to connect other than the views expressed on those tabs on our browser. And we forget that We make each other. So these are the ways that we make it worse, especially during times of calamity, during times of separation. We grasp and cling to things that will make us safe. We build our fortress at a furious pace. We cling to our own point of view and in the process forget that we make each other, that we are all connected. So it may seem like a tall order now, to say, so how do we make this better? Because unfortunately we still try to make it better by yelling at the other person to convince them that our point of view is right. That's not making it better, I'm afraid. So I'd like to take the middle way here and just suggest some ways during times of calamity that we can just not make it worse. This may not make it better, but, but if we could just not increase the suffering, if we can just not do that. I think that's more realistic actually right now. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna suggest three actions from classical Buddhist literature that we might do. There there are tons of of these. And then three more contemporary uh, things that we might do. And what you'll notice is that many of these ask us to stop. It's not actually going out and doing something, it's stop doing stuff that causes suffering. So the first of these is the most clear. This is the Metta Sutta. There's this wonderful line in the Metta Sutta where it says, do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. I might suggest that we all take that up as our mantra for 2021. Put it on a sticky on your computer screen. Okay, put it on your bathroom mirror, right? Do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. The second suggestion for not making it worse is actually a basket of things. Buddhism is nothing if not a religion of lists and oh boy, do we have them? Uh, So let me just suggest uh, some lists uh, that you might investigate. I'm not going to go through the details of all of these. Uh, But the first is the precepts, Uh, our vows uh, to not kill, to not steal, to not misuse sexuality, to not lie, to not become intoxicated, to not speak ill of others, that's a big one, (laughs) to not praise self at the expense of others, to not be stingy, to not harbor anger, how about that one, and to not disparage the triple treasures. Uh, I would like to suggest to you the possibly radical idea that that these calamities that we have today do not excuse us from our vows. I'm sorry, but they don't. Um, They're not an excuse. These calamities don't give us a pass uh, on on our vows. And even if you haven't taken vows, the fact that you're here today means that you have some buy-in to uh, a path of, Loving kindness, compassion, tranquility, and equanimity—these are the Brahma Viharas. Maybe you like that list. Uh, the the Paramitas, uh, for example, the Noble Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the this, the that—you know, the anyway, the numbers, right? Uh, so there's all kinds of lists in Buddhism that give us some guidance. So all I can say at this point is pick your favorite lists and live by it in 2021. Just pick a list. This will help us from making it worse. And the third example from traditional Buddhist literature I would like to bring to your attention is the Buddha's guidance, last guidance, to his followers. This is from the Pari Nirvana Sutra. The Buddha's followers, as he was dying, said, well, now what do we do? Since you're not going to be here, now what do we do? And so the Buddha gave them what is known as the Eight Awakenings, which I would like to read to you. In the context of these are some ways to not make it worse right now. Have few desires. Know how much is enough. Enjoy serenity. Make diligent effort. Do not neglect mindfulness, practice meditation, cultivate wisdom, do not engage in hollow discussions. So these are some suggestions from classical Buddhist teachings about how to not make it worse. Do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove, pick a list, Remembering that calamities, even the worst calamities, do not excuse us from our vows. And try out these eight awakenings for just pulling back from the edge, the precipice of the calamities. Now I would like to suggest three courses of action that are more geared to the modern world, perhaps, that we might take and relate them to back to the Buddha's teaching. So, my first suggestion to you in this time of calamity is is that you stop reading and contributing to the comments sections of news articles. For right speech is not found there. The only reason we go to comment sections and contribute to them is to find allies and to publish our witty zinger. We don't go there to find right view. Again, right view is not, I'm right, you're wrong. Right view is broad perspective. And there is no way to tone down a calamity if we stick to our narrow perspective. My second suggestion is to please stop sleeping and eating with your phone. The fear of missing out is actually an addiction to distraction. And the more we are distracted, the less we have time to be quiet and to investigate the ways that we are contributing to the calamity and to perhaps have some actions arise that actually might make it better. Our phone is neither a source of rest nor nourishment, so put it down, preferably turn it off. For major portions of the day. If something truly true, if a true emergency happens, they'll find you. Don't worry, you'll know. The phone is not a source of right view. Again, some perspective. It's an addiction and it's taken us over. It's difficult to be nourished when we're multitasking, which is what we're often doing on our phone. And my third suggestion is to stop and don't put one more brick in your fortress, but instead be a refuge, be a safe place for people to take refuge. Listen more than you talk. And instead of investing in bricks, invest in generosity. In the Buddha's time, there were considered to be four requisites, that this was all anybody needed to live. Food, clothing, bedding, and medicine. We really don't need any more than that. These are the uh, physical requisites, of course, the other one being relationship. Ananda once said to the Buddha, ah, how wonderful relationships are half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, oh, Ananda, don't say that. Relationships are the whole of the holy life. So think about how you might give the four requisites and relationship connection. You have a choice. We have a choice to either invest in the fortress or to invest in relationship. We can't do both. One precludes the other. And even if you are an activist or have activists that you know, even activists need refuge so that they don't take their message forward from a spirit of us versus them. I'm right, you're wrong. If you're going to go to a hopefully masked and socially distanced demonstration, I plead with you to go in this manner. Wear your robes, take your cushions, wear your mask, and sit zazen in the middle of the protest. Offer the generosity of an alternative to the two-sidedness that is going on all around us. And think how you might, if you have the resources to provide food, clothing, bedding, or medicines to the millions of people, especially children, who are without such at this time. So, mostly the way to make things not worse is to stop. The Buddha said that one of the free choices that we actually have is to refrain, to not check the news every five minutes, to not respond to every ping on our phone, to not do other things while we're eating, to not put another brick in our fortress. So I would like to end today with three pieces of advice from contemporary Buddhist commentators. The first is from Jack Cornfield, who said, compassion does not see the world's pain and sorrow as other. These calamities are us. We have the choice to make a Buddha or make a terrorist. Compassion does not see the world's pain and sorrow as other. Thich Han said, peace, never depends on the other person. That may seem a bit of a stretch, but it's actually true. Peace never depends on the other person. And finally, uh, Jodo Cliff reminded me of something in a similar vein that Dinan Katagiri said, when no one accepts the peace we offer, where should peace return? It should return to ourselves. So I beg of you, don't make it worse. And if you have some despair about not knowing how to make it better, stop and refrain and investigate how you might at least not make it worse. When no one accepts the peace we offer, where should peace return? It should return to ourselves. You've been listening to A Dharma Talk from Prairie Mountain Zen Center in Longmont, Colorado. To learn more about us or to make a donation, visit us at prairiemountain.org.